Looks like this kitten's got the cream. It appears we have caught our intruder. Teach her a lesson. In China Mieville's Dial H, a reboot of the classic DC comic series Dial H for Hero, Nelson Gent is out of shape and unemployed. He's angry with the world and he hates himself. After a fight in an alleyway, he stumbles upon a mysterious payphone. Calling for help, Nelson dials 4376. Hero. With the power of the H-dial, an average man is transformed into a string of random, extraordinary superheroes. One turn of the old rotary mechanism, and Nelson Gent is human virus, the iron snail, or boy chimney. Sadly, the magical effects don't last long. His body morphs back, slowing down, filling out. After a while, he's regular again. The worst identity of all, Nelson sighs. It's a classic narrative. The easily overlooked everyman raised to hero status by a twist of fate. A mutant spider bite, a lab experiment gone wrong. These kinds of stories only work because the character we're meant to be rooting for is stuck in the ordinary. It's because they've lost hope or because they've got no room to manoeuvre that there's the possibility of triumph. You could say that being trapped gives us the chance to be a hero. In this episode of Car. We think about bodies, how they trap us, and how we try and escape them. In part one, online annoyance horrible gif elaborate on their blog, the rotting veil of anonymity, and the art world's unwholesome peculiarities. Next, writer Juliet Jacks discusses the inadequacy of the cliché trapped in the wrong body, and reads excerpts from a letter to her teenage self included within the recently published anthology Letters Lived, Radical Reflections, Revolutionary Paths. Lastly, artist Hanny Lippard presents a new sound work, Fossil, exploring the ways in which the body is a trap for the voice and the voice a trap for words.
the arrival of all things internet has led a lot of the art world into a new place. That's horrible gif. I try and speak to them via Skype, but it fails. Technology lets us down. An internal system error seems appropriate. It's just like the sad Mac face that they use as the logo on their blog. Horrible GIF is a Tumblr and Twitter account, a network of anonymous contributors who they refer to as deep cover interns generate its content, providing a satirical commentary on contemporary art, its people, and things they don't like. You know, it's a product of our love for Viz, Adam and Joe, Brassai, Groucho and Marx, and, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of name dropping, things like that. Horrible GIF is primarily tended to during lunch, coffee breaks, and toilet time at respective jobs that we all have. As a rule of brevity, depending on what submissions we get or what things we see that pique our interest. Existing material, be it badly written press releases, Art Review's Power 100 list, promotional videos or Grayson Perry's wreath lectures are appropriated and parodied through a process of editing and remixing. Horrible GIF was simply inspired by our collective admiration of dissenting cultural voices, often grumpy ones whose negative prerogative is to correct disharmony, at least that's our interpretation. The journal magazine rails against what it sees as injustices in the operations of the arts and they tend to be dodging money, currents, bad public projects and things like that. Aside from the strategy of Photoshop sabotage, Horrible GIF perform these injustices in adopting the role of intern as mascot. In her essay, Art as Occupation, Claims for an Autonomy of Life, artist Hito Steril writes that the term intern is linked to internment, confinement and detention, a figure that is inside labour but outside remuneration, stuck in a space that includes and excludes simultaneously. By co-opting the intern, Horrible Gift position themselves within a discourse of freedom and entrapment. Anyway, you don't need to do much sleuthing on the internet to get wind of pockets of nepotism, daft pseudo-reportage and other unwholesome peculiarities. We're free to comment on that, as we're on the internet, and everyone's free on the internet. <coughs> well, supposedly. They gave up their bodies, trading them in for a digital mask and a collaborative personality. Social media provides a self that is fluid, one that can reject the limits of embodied contingency in favour of a more mutable, irresponsible persona. I suppose the entrapment of that is the potential response of the art world to our whining. Uh, they probably blacklist us like Lars von Trier at Cannes. Our contributors, all of them, know that in the modern day, anonymity is essentially a rotting veil. And, and uh, when that times out, you know, you're going to be met with uh, possible excommunication. So, so what? The primary thing we're, I suppose, want to rail against is the salami idea within contemporary art. That it has to be success achievement driven by networking and by branding of self. 
all beneath the sticky boughs of trends. And, you know, we can run on and on about that on our own sort of view. But I think one thing that's for sure, it creates an environment of exclusivity that often the people in that are happy to exacerbate. <coughs> Most artistic production is undertaken without any checks or balances. It's just a positive feedback system. We think it's important that we should live in a world where there is of diversity of voices, be they good or bad, positive or negative. Juliet, I addressed this letter to your old name so your parents wouldn't get confused or suspicious. I know what you're thinking. Who is this? Why is she so worried about what my parents think? And how does she know that I prefer to be called Juliet when I've never told anyone? Journalist, critic and writer of short fiction Juliet Jacks harnesses writing as a tactic against naivety, despair and defeat. In the anthology Letters Lived, Radical Reflections, Revolutionary Paths, she writes a letter to her teenage self. It charts a personal journey of one woman's trans experience alongside changes in LGBT activism politics and social attitudes. Juliet has described these exercises in letter writing as an attempt to reconcile her sense of self. Perhaps they perform a kind of exorcism too. Despite efforts to present more complex and counter-narratives, the phrase trapped in the wrong body persists as a means of defining how it feels to be transgender. Like others, Juliet has never really identified with this cliché. When I was growing up, I saw the phrase trapped in the wrong body an awful lot, and it was always within the context of these kind of one or two page newspaper articles about somebody who transitioned pretty much always from male to female. And the headline was always, I was trapped in the wrong body. I mean, I was still seeing it quite recently, uh, independent piece about a trans woman who I've since met and it headlined with her new name but it also used her old name and the phrase I was trapped in the wrong body and I was really just flabbergasted to still be seeing this in the second decade of the 21st century. I thought a lot more about how I related to that phrase and whether it meant anything to me and actually I'd never really felt trapped in the wrong body. I felt that my body wasn't appropriate for me 
more and more as I got through my kind of particularly mid-twenties and I started transitioning at the age of 27. And it was that I didn't like my body, but I was very aware of the possibilities to modify it in a way that I wanted to. So I never felt trapped within it because that option was, was always present. So I guess that's a factor of coming from a specific cultural moment. And I didn't dislike my male body until quite close to transition, actually, because I was exploring my gender in other ways that were partly physical, but largely more psychological, and there was an interesting relationship between the two. How I came to feel about it is it wasn't a matter so much of being trapped in the wrong body and getting out of that, but more a matter of resetting the sort of relationship between my body and my mind putting it back to the right starting point so it could then redevelop as I wanted it to. Language restricts, holds us back with its codes and its mediation. What we need is new ways of thinking and writing about gender and sexuality. Theory has real-time repercussions when put into practice. Dear Juliet, what happens to turn you from a confused, closeted boy in 1998 into the confident, creative woman of 2013? Well, you'll be delighted to hear. It's theory. You don't know it yet, although you wish you did. But during the 90s, through all that time, when you thought there was nobody quite like you, Nobody who wanted both to challenge gender conventions and reject bourgeois norms. Nothing beyond the loaded terms of transvestite and transsexual. There were writers in the US coming up with radical critiques of how transgender people lived, how they were treated by the medical establishment and how they were portrayed in the media. They were asking why those who felt themselves beyond male or female were scorned by the political left and right and looking into exciting, liberating new gender formations. Most importantly, they develop a new language to express them, one which helps you understand yourself and explain yourself to people around you, and ultimately your readers. But they're all in universities, and don't make it into the TV shows or films accessible to you via British television, or the newspapers that your parents get, the Daily Mail and the Sunday People. I wish I'd known to look up Sandy Stone, Kate Bornstein, Ricky Ann Wilkins, Leslie Feinberg, and all the other wonderful theorists, and free myself from the gender binary. In The Empire Strikes Back, a post-transsexual manifesto, Sandy Stone writes, Passing means to live successfully in the gender of choice, to be accepted as a natural member of that gender. Passing means the denial of mixture. She argues that passing is a form of erasure, a process which denies a life grounded in the intertextual possibilities of the transsexual body. To resist being read, to comply with the binary, could this be understood as a form of entrapment? I think it's very possible to think about passing as a form of entrapment in that it imposes a way of thinking about gender on you um, and obviously this has a very complex relationship with the way that gender identity clinics expected 
trans people who pass through their doors, particularly, I think, male to female trans people, to sort of present and comport themselves. One of the things Sandy Stone talks about is the problem of passing, erasing personal history and thus making it more or less impossible to talk about the specific challenges that are faced by trans people as social beings. One of my favourite things I've ever written, and it will never see the light of day because I was about 21 when I wrote it, was a short story called The Inventive Past of Marina. And I wrote two narratives which would be presented on different sides of the page. And one was a deliberately, incredibly banal discussion at a very middle-class garden party with a person that Marina had just met for the first time who was asking her all sorts of questions about what she did for a living and where she went to school and how she grew up. And she's trying to pass in this situation. Mm -hmm. So you see her telling this man that she went to an all-girls school and that she works mm -hmm. in a certain place, things like this. And on the right, you get the inner monologue where she's stressing about whether or not this man has read her as transsexual, what to tell him about her schooling, what opportunities there are to get out of the conversation, who will help her, who might, for kind of transphobic reasons, kind of make her life more difficult in this interaction. And that idea that, you know, even the most kind of tiny social interactions, the most banal interactions, become really infused with terror when you're trying to pass. And they become infused with that kind of terror at points, I think, whether or not you're trying to pass. There are certain instances where I wouldn't try to pass because... I just found it stressful and difficult, and that's with friends or family, people who know my history. Um, but there are also points where I do try to pass mm -hmm. for kind of reasons of safety or because I'm feeling a particularly strong sense of dysphoria and I want to try and address that. I wrote a piece for the New Statesman recently about a, uh, a train journey with a group of football fans, yeah, which drew very much on the particular this kind of nether region between trying to pass and not trying to pass mm -hmm. and working out the personal safety implications of whichever choice I made and that becomes a form of entrapment as well but that's very much imposed from the outside if nobody was bothered about whether or not I passed that wouldn't have been an issue mm -hmm. queer writer B Preciado describes bodies as biopolitical archives for the powers that be they are organic architectures through which government legislation, multinational corporations and design technologies intersect. In Testo Junkie, published last year, Preciado maps the formulation of gender and sexual identity onto medical advancements such as the pill or Viagra, exploring the ways in which pharmaceutical and pornography industries have created desire. Alongside this historical narrative, the book includes an account of Preciado's experience self-administering testosterone gel over the course of a year. The mind is explored through modifying the body. For Preciado, self-experimentation is a form of knowledge production and all great literature has a technique or technology attached to it. Yeah, uh, I think that's that's a very interesting way of thinking about a lot of writing, and particularly queer writing, and particularly queer writing about the self. You know, this this very long-standing feminist idea that the personal is political, and it was very much what has underpinned pretty much every intervention I've made into any sort of public discourse. I'm really fascinated by this concept of confessional journalism. 
and the you know in a fairly tongue-in-cheek way I like to compare myself to people like Liz Jones at the Daily Mail who write about themselves in this very kind of confessional style and I'm very interested in the structures that govern that and the reasons why people of certain backgrounds are more expected to write about themselves in a certain way than people of others. Dear Juliet, All of this probably sounds very distant, but you're very lucky to grow up with an incredibly important tool which sets you on your way, the internet. You probably won't be shocked to hear that nobody calls it the information superhighway after about 1997. You'll start, in fact I think you have started, by looking up transvestite and transsexual and finding people who feel like you, even one or two living nearby. This helps you humanise them and realise that they're not all like the ones in the Daily Mail or on ITV, conservative men masturbating in their wives' raciest lingerie, or tragic burly people in floral dresses with stubbly legs, demanding that the families and the state bend to their every whim. Later, it will help you realise that this is how certain so-called radical feminists characterise transgender people as well. And it will help you to find people arguing against both these rad femmes and the conservative transphobes. Don't worry about this, their positions are virtually indistinguishable, so you should only need one argument to deal with both groups. It will also help you to put together a cultural history, starting with Bolton and Park, the cross-dressers of Victorian London who inspired Oscar Wilde, as well as Magnus Hirschfeld and the Institute for Sexual Science, pioneers like Michael Dillon and Roberta Cowell, punk rock star Jane County, and filmmakers like Pedro Almodovar or Rosa von Praunheim. Above all, the internet is where you'll find the politically queer and trans subcultures, theoretically and socially, that first save and then reinvigorate your life. From 2010 to 2012, Juliet's column, A Transgender Journey, published by The Guardian Online, charted her progress of transition. These concise texts are a practical and theoretical resource infused with the intimacy of a diary. Juliet makes the body present again in a way that antagonises preconceptions through its transparency. She brings writing back to the body. So much writing around trans people and particularly trans women and particularly the kind of hostile radical feminists that I mentioned would focus very much on the way trans people dressed and presented themselves and I was saying well no actually what's underneath this is the need to alter the body and the clothes that people put on it and the social pressures that govern those choices are something that's evolved out of that and it's best to go back to the core of the matter. Towards the end of the letter to her teenage self, Juliet describes how she turned her self-loathing outwards, dedicating herself to the fight against conservatism and the trappings of normative values. Dear Juliet, 
The people and places that you expect to be radical will often prove to be anything but. This is true for those you find at university, but particularly for the LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender activism that exists when you're an adult. Right now, you're consoling yourself about your latent queerness by saying to yourself, well, at least I don't have to get married and no one will expect me to join the army. Well, guess where the people who you identify with spend most of their campaigning energy? This makes sense to you. It's an obvious injustice that people are excluded from these things on the grounds of their gender or sexuality, and activists choose them as their achievable targets with a tangible result. But you still can't get behind any politics that prizes itself on access to society's most conservative institutions. This is where the concept of queer really helps you, uniting gender variant and sexually diverse people under a revolutionary banner, culturally and politically. But still, prepare yourself for the letdown of feeling distance from people whose conception of LGBT equality simply means equality under neoliberal capitalism. By 2010, I hate to tell you, there are 13 openly gay conservative MPs and floats at Brighton Pride which smugly proclaim, I've come out, I'm a Tory, and all you'll think is, go back in. Anyway, I'll sign off now. I've got books and articles to write, and you've probably got a band practice to go to or something. Keep reading, keep writing, keep finding interesting people wherever you can, and above all, keep your resolve. You're going to need plenty of it, but I know you will. Good luck, and all my love. Lippard is an artist who lives and works in Berlin. She devotes most of her time to writing, which she uses in performance, film and sound-based works such as the following four-minute piece, Fossil, commissioned especially for this episode of Car. Speaking about speaking is not as easy as it sounds. The sound of one's own voice comes in between. When speaking about speaking, one might as well speak about listening. When listening while speaking, one might discover what one is actually saying. Do you ever listen to yourself? The body of your own voice. They say you should listen to your own body but what they mean is not your own gastric passages or inner fears, but rather to not inhale smoke or drive hard and have a rest or a piece of fruit instead of bacon. Don't stress. Stretch your neck, reflect, etc. 
But that's not what your body is saying. That's your doctor speaking. The voice is not a doctor. The voice has a body of its own. Shape unknown. What I am saying when I am speaking about listening is that I am not speaking about hearing your own voice as you make your way through to the end of the conversation, passing words and time around with small talk. I am instead talking about lending yourself an ear. You might hear yourself speak all the time, that audible leak of words travelling from mind to mouth, but when was the last time you actually listened to yourself speaking? The body of your voice. You say it's hard to listen to what one is saying with so much else going on. The cacophony of multiple mobile choices, community communication, or that re-re-repeated song in the supermarket. You speak, but never listen. Breathing comes without reflection, but sometimes speech does too. I will record you while we are speaking. This interview will take about 30 minutes, she says. 30 minutes later, 30 minutes are being played back to yourself as a crackling piece of MP3. You might find your voice sounding a bit duck-like. Now where's that duck coming from? Somehow, it got trapped in between the idea of yourself and the capacity of your lungs. Those elastic sagging sacks of oxygen have let a stranger in through the back door. A back duck in a sack breaks through and is played back on the tape recorder. You ask to listen to it once more, this time with headphones, to avoid public exposure and shame. But this is worse, the duck now looping inside of you. Once again you ask, who is this person speaking? It's you, she says, and pulls the plug, not noticing you were speaking out loud once you were closed in listening to your own voice. I can send you the transcript by Wednesday. It has to go to print the following day. Silence follows in shameful admittance. So, it is you. So, your voice is you. Is it you? The voice has a body of its own. An ephemeral elastic spirit, verbalised through oxygen. Recorded, it lives on in a physical dual existence. Or triple, or global. Re-re-repeated. Stretching the body, like your doctor's voice said, from echo to ego, ego to echo. Echo, that poor girl, spellbound into spending the rest of her life, diminished into nothing but a reverberating shadow of herself. Ego depleted, re-re-re-repeated. At first there was nothing, not even something, not even something hidden in the sand. There was no sound. There was no sound. Then there was the word. To be heard. Who spoke the first word is uncertain. What the word was is also not clear. How the voice sounded, nobody knows. Spoken words do not fossilize. Ducks do, but only their bones. Many remnants from the past go undiscovered. Only hard, resistant material survives. The disappearance of a body can be rapid. Whatever brittleness there is about you, it will vanish with silt or sand when time passes.
as one knows. The poor jellyfish is after all nothing but a fleeting soul, never given a solid afterlife. You've been listening to Car, audio that considers other ideas. Check out previous episodes at www.listentocar.co.uk. Thank you.